to the vent room where respiratory therapists can come and get a little inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry. Well, I know everybody, we have been offline for a while, but we're welcoming you back to the vent room. Uh, like everybody else, the, the pandemic has had its effects on the way we live, work, and what's going on. And I'm happy to be back. I'm Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry, and today we are talking to Cheyenne. Baird. She is a respiratory therapist who is going to give us some reflections from her point of view in this pandemic uh, world. And welcome to the Vent Room, Cheyenne. I'm happy to have you here. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your background, how long you've been a respiratory therapist, where you maybe started out? Okay, well, first off, I would like to say thank you, Tabitha, for um, inviting me to your podcast um, for our wonderful respiratory therapists um, out there on the front line. It's uh, my pleasure to share my experience. Um, so I have been a registered respiratory therapist for 15 years. Gosh, when I say that, I, um, I kind of get goosebumps because I didn't realize how long I've been in this field. It's been it's been a journey. Um, I started in um, New York um, um, at uh, Jacoby Medical, Montefiore, um, mostly trauma level one hospitals. And um, and then I migrated um, to Charlotte, North Carolina, um, where I've worked at both hospitals because there are only two um, organizations here. And um, after about six years, um, you know, kind of working at level one trauma hospitals and really getting my hands dirty and um, in all the units, ICU, CCU, um, ER, you name it, NICU, PICU, um, I just wanted to branch out and travel. So in 2016, I actually um, thought, I didn't think about traveling at that point. I wanted to kind of um, escalate my career into um, flight therapy. And so I went through that grueling process of a nine hour interview and simulations and, um, you know, kind of doing, yeah, I guess, what do you call it? The, the flight kind of riding the helicopter right along. And, um, and my body said no. And I actually was nauseated every time I went up in, in the sky. And um, it left me very sad because, you know, I was really gung-ho about becoming a flight therapist and got the position and everything and had to think about it. Well, at the time of, um, you know, deciding whether I wanted to do that or not for um, Med Center Air, I got offered a position in Saudi Arabia. And so, you know, I kind of juggled with the thought, well, you know, I can either do flight and take some Zantac and really, you know, medicate myself up, up in the air. And um, I said, yeah, no, I don't think that's the best option. So I took the contract out in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, um, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And um, that's where my journey began. Um, it, it was an eye-opener. It was very interesting and um, came home to do traveling, you know, via USA. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it does. And I think that that like gives like that perspective on multiple things that our audience is interested in. One, um, just because you have a desire to do something like where you had that amazing desire to do flight and it, it, it hurt that you couldn't do it. And, and sometimes that's the reason why those, those interviews are so grueling. Um, you know, we're, we're really good at that simulation. And, and, and if you're a good therapist in clinical and you've had great experiences and you built, built that background, mm -hmm. um, you know, you go through those interviews and your body told you that, you know, this isn't for, for you. It, being up in the air, because I've done travel and or I've done transport, you know, you're in a very small environment. It's very difficult to communicate. You're dealing with those pressure changes. And, and even though you're not that far up, it can be, you know, a little nauseating. I know that one, uh, one of them in being in the back of the ambulance too, I think that, uh, you know, if I'm in a car, I can see where I'm going and that changes your equilibrium. But when you're in the back of the ambulance or, you know, not sitting forward, you're looking, you're usually kind of either sitting backwards or sitting to the side and that changes the perspective that your, your body's in. So I think that that's a, an interesting fact. And I know probably most of the audience right now don't, don't know, or, but I'm currently in the Middle East. So I, I have that tie with you understanding that desire to um, 
experience different things. And I'm in actually Qatar. My, uh, I'm going to be coming back to the United States in the next couple of weeks. So I'm excited to come back, but it was definitely a, to- it's been a totally different experience living in a Middle Eastern country, servicing um, here, you know, it's in Qatar. It's, it's very interesting because the, population is very diverse because 30% of the population is national and like 70% of the population is expatriate. So we're dealing with people from all over the world. I'm working currently in an organization that has people from like 500 different nations. So it's very eclectic. And, you know, that experience traveling in the U.S. is amazing, but it's also very interesting to to do it outside of the U.S. where uh, there are respiratory assignments. You know, for here they don't look at you, look at you as a traveler. You know, where I'm at, I'm not on a closed ended contract. We had it open ended, so we were just basically um, employees of the hospital, and you just gave your notice. Notice is two months here, so you have to kind of think ahead of when you're planning stuff out. Mm-hmm. But um, it's super interesting, you know. I'm sure we could have a whole podcast on working in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's very different and, and everybody has their stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I have, a, I have a bunch of stories. I mean, I really like the fact that, you know, you, you're near Thailand, like you're around the corner from Thailand or Africa, um, you know, continents, you know, it's just not going to Florida or California. It was going to Abu Dhabi, you know, that's where you ventured or India, you know, like you don't get to hear many people say, oh, I'm going to India for the weekend. <laughs> you know, you just right. get up on the plane and you're you're in another country. So I really, you know, miss that. But the lifestyle was was very interesting. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and with COVID, it, unfortunately, that that whole um, you know get on a plane and go somewhere is, is very limited nowadays. So, w- during this pandemic, you're a traveler. Where have you mm-hmm. taken on assignments? in this, you know, pandemic world? Well, um, interesting you ask that because, you know, I didn't think, I was sitting in my living room one day and, you know, the news was on and I was just like, God, I'm a respiratory therapist and and the world needs respiratory therapists out there for this pandemic. And God, I'm, I'm, I'm really nervous because, you know, the news makes it seem bigger than what it was, but I felt like, you know, as a, um, level one trauma therapist for 15 years, I needed to be out there. I didn't know what to do. And so, you know, they had this, you know, uh, kind of um, advertising for respiratory therapists making all this money. And I really wasn't looking for the money. I was looking at just, um, just helping others out there, helping my therapists out there who I heard was drowning. And so New York City, me being from Brooklyn, New York, born and raised um, for 34 years, just said, man, I need to go home. I need to go home and help my people. And so New York, of course, um, I landed um, right in the middle about April 3rd um, in Midtown. And um, as soon as I landed, they had this emergency broadcast going through the phone systems and help. We need help. You know, anyone um, volunteers, we need emergency staff quickly. And I said, oh my God, what did I get myself into? (laughs) And um, that's when my journey began. So I, I literally stayed in New York City from the beginning to, which was the Mecca, um, which everyone was like, why are you going to New York? Why are you going to New York? And I'm um, very, very happy I went and I stayed for three months. Um, and I tell you, after Saudi, New York, there were no words to explain the things that I had to witness and see and be a part. I think, I think Saudi Arabia was a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine. I mean, I normally, I know with travelers themselves, they usually have a very short orientation. Um, mm-hmm. I think the advertisements for respiratory therapists to go to these hotspot, hotbed locations were very, we need experienced people. Um, you know, it's not that they really wanted strong people coming into these areas because these were the like the sickest of the sick. And, and, and they're just it seems I mean, it, it's kind of like fighting a war. It's it's in fighting a war against a virus, which we've never had in, in any of the lifetimes, I think, of anyone currently alive. So we're, we were dealing with something we are still dealing with something that really doesn't have anything to compare it to. So I think it's definitely 
Interesting. How was the orientation like? You know, you land in New York, you're listening to this crazy broadcast that's making you wonder what the heck have I walked into? <laughs> but it, it makes you feel like you're walking into a war zone. Mm-hmm. How was, like, was the orientation the same that you would have gotten on any other travel assignment that you've taken or was it, um, was it different? Absolutely not. It was, it was nothing like I've ever heard of before. I walk in um, and I was at uh, Coney Island Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, and which was probably one of the worst hospitals because it was in, you know, in the, in the end of Brooklyn, New York. And so, you know, it wasn't a level one trauma center, first of all. And so they only had one ventilator. They did not have any advanced modalities. They did not use Biven or APRV or high frequency. They didn't even use nitric. So you basically had the the minimal of the minimal support, these critical care patients. And so, you know, I walk in and they say, oh my God, we're so glad that you're here. They only had two therapists for 140 um, vented patients, two therapists. So, you know, they're like, oh my God, they were so happy that you know, three of us showed up and three of us, you know, one girl from Nevada, one girl um, from Chicago, and we all stay in touch. And um, they just kind of threw us in the ED. They say, here's the equipment, here's that, here's this, no charting. When I heard no charting, I said, what the heck is going on? No charting. I don't want nobody sitting down charting, you know, unless you trans, um, transport a patient and we're not transporting, we're not doing anything. We're just, you know, they were just using LTVs for, you know, initiating a patient from innovation. So, so it was really like, it was a war. It, it was a war and I get goosebumps when I talk about it. I think I kind of um, um, put it under the carpet for a while. I just kind of tucked it. I think about it, but but it, it really was, um, it was a war. It was, you know, feast or famine. And um, that was my orientation. It was none, <laughs> absolutely none. Well, and, and it, it kind of shows how, different during this time is because anybody who works in healthcare has probably heard the statement like if it isn't charted it wasn't done you mm-hmm. know um mm-hmm. so i can imagine just kind of being there but when you say there there was five therapists for 140 critical patients that's not like the ratio is still ridiculous <laughs> You know, Um, and it's it's hard, right? Because there are people I'm sure that would have been willing to go to New York. But when you have your full time job, you can't necessarily quit up and go and do a travel assignment. So especially where there's, you know, New York was like the epicenter for 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 the U.S., as they said. But, you know, since then, you know, New York slowed down and now there's other areas. So I know that like Texas is dealing with a lot. And um, I think Texas is really one of the ones that comes to mind, Florida, you know, 15,000 COVID cases a day coming out positive. So it, it's, it's, it's moving around, uh, especially posts like some of these summer holidays where people are congregating and not thinking, you know, they should be social distancing from their family, you know, but you don't know where they've been. Yeah, well, I had a lot of coworkers who quit their jobs and um, came from North Carolina because they, there were no cases and they had the same um, um, feeling I had or thought, you know, help out our fellow uh respiratory therapists and um, they were not getting acknowledged at their home hospital. And so they felt the need to come out, you know, make the the money and also help us, which was very, very, very helpful. I mean, we almost ended up by the second week I was there, we were full with therapists and no work to do, (laughs) you know, um, but, but the death rate was definitely increasing. So we, we, we still had to deal with helping one another out and running and, and, and literally, I, I remember telling a doctor, he said, well, what can we do? What can we do? I said, there's nothing we can do. There's, no, there's absolutely nothing. And just the amount of um, death that was happening, it was just, you know, one minute they're trying to take their pills and the next minute they're intubated. Two days later, they're dead. And I was just in awe. I mean, I was... I just remember a patient who was 41 years old and he came into the ICU and he was up and he was talking, he was on a non-rebreather. And um, I said, we need to intubate this patient. We really, really do. And um, and at that point, they were reluctant to intubate, you know, um, critical 
critical COVID patients, um, but the BiPAP had not proven effective at that point. And um, he literally lasted maybe a week. And I remember him saying, so you're going to put me to sleep? And that was the last thing I remember. And I carry that with me because I'm like, darn it, this thing was awful. It was awful. It was, I can't even tell you what, what they look like before they die. They just melted, melted. When you're, I, I can't imagine, you know, I mean, it's, it, it was probably very, very difficult in the sense of just the, the sheer numbers. Um, now, while you were on assignment, I know during the beginning, we were, the news was really hyping that, you know, there wasn't enough PPE for for providers. Did you feel safe that you had the PPE and the needed equipment to care for these patients while trying to protect yourself? So when I first got to that hospital, and, and I, should, I should go back, that wasn't my first hospital. I went The first hospital I went to was Kings County Medical Center, um, which was also in Brooklyn, New York. And they had the highest hit because of the location in Brooklyn. But they didn't have um, PPE. They they actually told me, um, and I was so glad that I had my own half mask respirator. But I I said I need to get fit tested from your um, in, within your hospital. I said we're not fit testing. We're not fit testing. We don't have any N95s. Um, we ran out. Um, you got to use one glove. Um, we were we were using blood pressure. Um, I think like um, bags to put over our feet. So we were basically makeshifting everything, um, plastic bags, anything you could find to in reusing gloves, sanitize the glove that you have on. Don't keep using gloves. At one point they were handing out um, N95s and gloves to you per shift if they had it per shift or you had to hold on to that for three days to a week. So we were struggling and um, a lot of our uh, therapists, thank God they had social media backing, had had fans kind of bringing in stuff for us because we we were we didn't we weren't equipped enough for it. So we had to we had to, to make do with what we had and um Thank God I came out of there with no COVID symptoms. Well, I, I think that like the supply chain, you know, most, especially if you're in the non-level one trauma center, you know, they, they, you, you know how much equipment you use in a year, you know, mm-hmm. you know that there's patterns, they, they look at things, maybe more to order more things in the winter based off, uh, history and, and chronicles of equipment. So I think that for, a, a lot of hospitals, it was trying to, to find the supply chain. And a, a lot of what we get to protect ourselves uh, was coming, it, it does come from China, like gloves and gowns and things like that. And that supply chain was broken. So were the, like you said, you, you knew before you went that they were having difficulty with the PPE and that you should bring your own respirator that you happen to have? Well, I think, you know, my intuition is always correct. And something just told me to bring that half mask respirator just because my, I'm, I'm not fit tested for the usual duck belt mask. And um, I have to either wear a half mask or a uh, pepper. So when I came to the hospital, I said, we don't have peppers. You know, we only have this. And I said, I don't fit test. So it was a, it was a, a, a problem trying to get me fit tested for that. And I, was told by the agency that I was would be working for that they would have the correct equipment, which they did not. Um, so that left me with, oh God, what do I do? Um, you know, just kind of kind of do the best that I can. Thank God that I had the half mask respirator. Otherwise, everything else was just a made up makeshift of different parts. It definitely, it it sounds like what we were saying. It's a war zone. There's limited supply. And the demand is high. And, you know, at what point in in um, history and healthcare in, in this day and age would say, hey, yeah, we're going to be reusing gloves. We're cleaning them in between. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it, it shows the magnitude of where we're at and no charting. I mean, it's kind of like you're going to work and you're just is this probably thinking, is this real? Because, again, you're you're dealing with something that we've never seen um, before. I know that 
this has been a challenging time for medical providers. Um, you know, the one thing I kind of say that's kind of good from COVID is that respiratory therapists are getting some airtime. They're getting recognized where um, previously, you know, you wouldn't have seen stories about respiratory therapists on the news. So I think that that at least is going to show what respiratory therapists are. Like if you go out into the general population and ask them, you know, do they know what a nurse does? They can give you a, a little bit of snippet of probably what a nurse does day to day. But if you ask some people, um, you ask what a respiratory therapist does, they probably never even heard of them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, I always try to look at the positive in, in bad situations. And I think that that's one thing as a profession, um, we're being recognized. So as a traveler, being assigned to the COVID unit, or just dealing with these COVID patients, what were some of the clinical challenges? I, I, you were saying that they only had LTVs to care for these patients. The equipment limiting, um, do you think overall in trying to get people taken care of or would, would an advanced ICU ventilator really make a difference with these patients overall? I mean, because I know at the beginning they were shying away from BiPAP and then later, I guess also how is is it dealing with a rapid change where it's like this week we were following kind of like, no, we don't want to intubate patients, but if we need to and not use non-invasive and then as everything's changed, you know, now it's like, okay, we can use high flow, we can use non-invasive in trying to support them as we go. Well, um, it was very limiting, of course, because LTVs, you know, as respiratory therapists, we hear of them mostly in the home health care, but not really in critical care, you know. And so if you have these patients who are, who you know, are infected with the virus and um, we know what the virus does, we know how how it it operates in the lungs and, the, in the, and even in the body and how it just, just destroys and, and causes inflammation. And so you got these LTVs and you have these critical care patients and they don't have waveforms, you know, LTVs don't have waveforms and it, the trigger sensitivity of, of LTVs is not helpful for these type of patients. So you have to wonder, you know, how, how much, um, either if they're on pressure control, how much pressure you're giving versus you don't know how much uh, uh, volume they're really getting. Um, then you have to, you know, sedate them. And then they would have the, the patients, these patients in rooms without monitors with the door closed. So, you know, <laughs> um, you, you couldn't use high frequency because of the diaphragm. It was spit out and you didn't want any airborne kind of uh, uh, mist going into the rooms. And so that was a problem or there weren't enough negative pressure rooms. So, you, you, you know, so you had all of these different things and there was really nothing to save them. Um, else, um, the BiPAP. Uh, so we would keep patients on the BiPAP, you know, because we had this attending who thought, well, the BiPAP was very helpful in preventing um, intubation, but the patients would be on the BiPAP for maybe a week to two weeks at a time at continuous. And we know what happens when you, you're smashing the face down, causing breakdown and, 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 you know, decreasing the amount of circulation to the face. So they would have all these wounds to the face, even though, though you're putting, you know, Alvin and all these, these things on it, it would still limit the amount of, of um, um, pressure that you, you can put into the lungs. I mean, the lungs are stiff. There's, there's but so much pressure you can put into a stiff lung. So at some point they're intubated. It's, it's way past the intubation stage. Right. And so, you know, we've missed that, that, that peak of possibly saving their life. And now we're, we're at a standstill. We're, we're increasing our, our, our peeps. Our plateau pressures are high. So I've seen peeps as high as 25 and 30 on a, on a regular servo, Servo eye. So, you know, with that, it, it, and it's not bivent, so we're not using bivent. We're not using a, a, a modality to reduce barrel trauma. We're just increasing the amount of volume trauma. And, and so then we have, what, what happens? We have like three and four um, chest tubes, <laughs> you know, so we're really getting nowhere. You know, we're really getting nowhere. I remember, you know, really trying to implement bivent on, on initiation, 
of these patients, I said, let's just try, you know, I tried it on the 41 year old and I put them on by then and I had them on like uh, 35 over, I don't know, uh, two of Pete. And as, and I was able to get his FIO2 down to like 40%. And I walk in the next day and the doctor turns him to uh, pressure control of people five. And you're like, what are you doing? You know? So then you have a lot of, um, there were um, providers who were either um, facial surgeons, gynecologists, um, Navy officers who never worked in critical care, um, and you had new interns. And so none of them were privy onto the different modalities that were going on. And so they were just playing around, constantly playing around with the ventilator. So then you had that to battle um, on top of the virus. <laughs> You know, you had a bigger virus to deal with. Right. No, I, I, I can imagine. I, I mean, I, it's just, it's trying to figure it out and you're doing with the best you can with what you have. You know, if you don't have the tools, you're going to do it the best you can for your patients in hopes that you will overcome and succeed. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, we, I think this is the first time the the world has been like okay how do i ration equipment how do i get equipment to people who need it mm-hmm. um you know usually we we have enough ventilators or i've you know i've worked in in hospitals where we knew we had let's say 24 ventilators and we had an upsurge so we would just call the call the local equipment rental company and say, Hey, I need a a couple more of these ventilators and and they would be delivered in a few hours. And when everybody is dealing with this upsurge, sure the rental companies were empty of ventilators because I mean, even on the news, they were saying we don't have enough ventilators for these patients. Mm -hmm. Um, I know a lot of, there's been a lot of research in, in different companies kind of making um, small, I'm going to call them pandemic vents because I've seen things where it's basically been uh, an ambu bag where it's squeezing <laughs> and, and making sure that the person was getting at least air into their lungs. But I think you highlighted an important point is the tools that we utilize. We, we like our waveforms. We, they tell us, you know, this minor adjustments that we're making, are they making a difference? So when you don't when you can't read them, mm-hmm. then it adds a new layer of challenge mm-hmm. that um, you might not anticipate or you, you, you take for granted that you usually have these wonderful waveforms and, and you can see where you're over descending or where you're not getting the patient enough peep or, or what, the, what their plateau pressure is to be able to say, okay, we're, yes, we have this setting, but the lungs are only seeing this. Right. But it's, it's definitely interesting. I know most hospitals had like a no family visiting during COVID. Was that the case where you were at where, where it was basically just the patients and, and no one else? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was another sad part. You know, you, you kind of felt like these patients were, um, um, homeless, you know, that they, they had, they, uh, wayward children or something because they had no, they had no family. We could not give them access or, or give the family access to the patients, even via, um, computerized mobile video monitoring or conferencing or anything because there were no CNAs, um, in the beginning and we could not have, um, um, administrative staff in the units or the secretary. So no one really could go in the rooms except the ones who were providing the care. It was very, 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 very limited, you know, very limited. And so you felt very sorry when you would see these patients about to die or the family members would call and say, hey, how is my husband? I had a patient who, you know, the wife was calling, how's my husband? And I, I, that, that, that's beyond my pay grade to tell them that your husband is not doing well. Um, we were proning him. It was constant proning. He was, you know, very edematous and um, he was, he was failing and I could not say anything. So um, 
it, it, there was a lot of emotional, physical, mental um, obstacles to face during that time. And when I came home, I really needed a month to just reprieve from it. I, I, I can totally um, understand that. So when, when you were working, like how many days in a row did you work? Did you, did you get like a break you know, because I know you said that were, you were three months. I, I doubt you worked three months straight, but I'm sure that there was a lot of days being worked. Yeah. Yeah. So five days in a row, um, four to five days was the minimal. Um, six days at some times. And I've, I've worked even seven days. Um, towards the end, it was four days. But even though you're not physically in the hospital, you still have to take into account you're in the Mecca of it all. You still are working mentally. You're still working. I, it was, I totally there was no that. relaxation. Well, I think between the news, social media, um, and it's not like, you know, one of the good things about why people like to travel is, you know, they'll do their assignment, they'll have the days, their days off, they can go explore and see different things. So you're kind of, you work and then you're you're protecting yourself from the virus at work mm-hmm. and then now you're trying to protect yourself from the virus <laughs> on your off time <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right you know so it's it's like even now we're we're where I'm at you know I'm, we limit our interaction with people um, we limit our activities you know the only time I really go out is for the most part is like uh grocery shopping or now i venture out to the coffee shop um on my day off just to to, to get out of the house because you know you kind of get that stir craziness (laughs) um with that like where did you stay were you in a hotel because i know like normally you can as a as a traveler you can choose to get you know the stipends and or or, you know, have them provide you housing. How did that work? Because I know that, you know, sometimes my friends that traveled to New York when they, before pre-COVID, right, we have pre-COVID and Mm post-COVID, they would just kind of rent a room in someone's house, do the benefits of of taking their stipend and and not using the whole thing. So, um, and and saving some money. But I can imagine that, you know, there's people that don't want to have medical people in their house traveling, uh, it's, it's probably not as easy to find housing. <laughs> well, um, since I was there for three months, the whole three months, the entire three months were not with one contract. I had about three contracts um, because, you know, one, I'm helping out. And at some point it was helping me out. Right. So I wanted to stay and really um, become financially secure. And um, so the f- first three weeks I was with one um, a FEMA um, contract and so we were in a hotel very nice hotel uptown Manhattan and um, stayed there and left and went in, in a lot of hotels thank God hotels businesses organizations you name it they were really helping us out frontliners out with free to low cost um, 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 you know housing or clothes or food, even McDonald's even helped us out. And so after that, I stayed in a free hotel at the Hilton, you know, thank God for Hilton. And and they kept me free for about six months, six weeks, excuse me. And um, so I stayed there for a while until the city started opening up. And um, then they started to charge a little bit more. And so then I went and found an Airbnb (laughs) Um, and I heard some people had some horrible stories with Airbnb, but I found a really good Airbnb host in Brooklyn. Um, so I went back home to my roots and uh, and that was pretty good. And I stayed there for a month. So, um, you know, I, I mean, it was, it there were good and, and there was bad, um, but the, the, Everyone was very, very nice. It was it was almost like 9-11 again. Everyone was helping each other out because they knew the city needed our help. I uh, I can definitely understand that. I, I lived in New York during 9-11. And um, I think one thing about living in the city, even though it's a large city and there's millions of people, 
when the city hurts, everybody hurts and, and they do, it, the city changes. It, it, it changes from that New York hustle bustle. I'm doing what I need to do to a very giving and empathetic community trying to help everyone out. Like they're, it's everybody's hurting at that time. So I think that when New York city or, or New York is challenged, it definitely changes the environment of the city if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It really does. Um, the city becomes one, you know, we, we become family, so to speak. So we, so everyone was family during that time. And it was very, it was a camaraderie kind of thing. You know, the police officers were even just kind of like helping out. Um, there were a lot of homeless people even trying to be, <laughs> were nice, <laughs> you know, um, it, it was it was very interesting to see the the city just quiet you know, and everyone just nice and kind. I felt like I was in the south. I I definitely understand that because I remember um, going into the city like on September twelfth, and it was there was just nothing. There was quiet. You know, everybody kind of in, still in 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 shock, and then the the period of time after that, as the city opened up again. It, it wasn't the honking. It was, it was just, it was a hundred percent totally different environment with a, a different reflection. And it was like, everybody was very polite and, and, you know, New York's, it, it, it's a big city. So, you know, most people are heading to work, they're busy, they're focused. And I think after, um, something big, right. Where we kind of reflect on our lives and we reflect on what's, happening and, and reflect how everything affects everybody. And this is like a worldwide thing. It's not just um, one area that we, we change. I mean, I think we, we physically and mentally change. Mm -hmm. So you, you had some nice places to stay. And like we said, it's not like you could go and enjoy the city. Like no one, no one was enjoying the city. You're, you're trying to protect yourself from the virus. Mm -hmm. How did you cope or what did you do on your, your days off to try and relax, to, to rejuvenate yourself. Cause I think that historically healthcare providers don't do a, a, a always a good job of taking care of themselves. We, mm -hmm. we get into healthcare and we care for people and we, we care for people. And because we care for others so much, we don't necessarily do what's best for us. Mm -hmm. um, so what did you do to rejuvenate on those days off? So, you know, since I was home, I kind of knew the places to go to kind of rejuvenate. Um, and I, at that, you know, after a while, I wasn't scared of the coronavirus as much. Um, everyone did their part on keeping, you know, six feet distance and sanitizing and things like that. But the city, like I said, was very, very peaceful. And so you, you, you know, city bike gave us free bicycles. Um, we would ride the bikes. Um, they had um, Revel scooters and I would, you know, ride on a scooter across the Manhattan Bridge or picnic in um, Greenpoint Park, go to Coney Island Beach and walk the, you know, the beach side. Um, there were some restaurants, even though you couldn't eat inside, that were open like Nathan's, you know, um, or just take a, um, and I, I managed to get a car because I needed a car. I, I needed a car to travel back and forth um, to work. So I rented a car and I would go outside of the city um, to say the Poconos and, um, you know, just, and you're right. I, I, as a healthcare worker, have a hard time taking care of myself um, emotionally, physically, and mentally. And so I had to find a way to do that from time to time, even if it was just zoning out on the couch um, or talking to someone and saying, this is how I feel. I feel um, hurt. I feel overwhelmed. You know, um, I don't know what to do with these feelings. I, I, I can understand that. I mean, I like for me, I've been very lucky in this COVID situation, not getting exposed to a lot of it. But, you know, I think everybody's feeling overwhelmed. So when you're a frontliner, that that's a totally different level. Right. Mm -hmm. And and being able to recognize that 
you're needing help. And I think that one of the things that I want to hone in on is if you are a frontliner and you're you're having difficulty with coping and and really this is this isn't um you know we deal with death on a day-to-day basis you know we we can have that stable patient that crashes but i think the the level or the amount that we're being currently exposed to during this period of time is is at another level so making sure that we as healthcare providers take care of ourselves, take care of our coworkers, Mm -hmm. make sure that if you're needing like post-traumatic stress syndrome, I, I, there's, I feel like there's going to be providers suffering from that because of the different locations that they worked with or what they've had to see and endure. And, and um, if you're needing help, make sure that you're getting the mental health services um, to take care of yourself because you know this is this is one of those times where it's a trauma it it really is a a trauma having to deal with this at the magnitude that we are and um if you're needing services just reach out or or talk to people that can help you cope because i think that I know for, for me, when uh, I had a bad day at work, I would talk to my dad when he was alive and um, he didn't necessarily understand what I was going through because he, he wasn't in healthcare. Um, and I think that sometimes we don't want to burden our families with what we see mm-hmm. because they're not in the front line. So making sure that even if you can build a support system within your department, um, there's some com- companies have what they call as a second victims uh, program. Uh, I believe that actually started out at Nationwide Children's, uh, if I remember correctly, where we're, we're helping, like there's people identified on the unit to help when these things happen. So like in the one organization, it's like, hey, I had a new therapist. I was the educator. I knew that this was the first time this therapist had to with uh, do a terminal wean and afterwards somebody would check on that person and be like hey you know how are you feeling what are you are you doing okay if you don't want to talk today if you if you need anything they would just kind of let them know that there was someone to talk to Mm -hmm. since it was like a first time for them um and then so anything that we we had that was you know out of the ordinary or even if it was ordinary and somebody needed someone to talk to they they knew who the point people were to go reach out to um so i think that that's something that we need to take away as as providers is if you're needing help to to get it um i i i'm glad that you brought that up because i think you know sitting and thinking one day and i was like god i feel really depressed um, when I got home, I said, I feel really, really depressed and I don't know why. And um, when I came into this field, I didn't know about terminal extubation. Like you mentioned, I I just remember my first patient at about three o'clock in the morning and I had to, they said, terminally extubate. And I said, what, what do you mean? And she was overdosed and she, you know, I could, I can vividly remember her face, but I think, you know, as respiratory therapists, we just get through. You know, we just get through, we just, you know, pull the plug. We just, you know, see these, you know, whether it's a baby to uh, an adult die and how they die in the transition and where the, we see the first and the last. And for me, I just kind of shut down and just got through the work day. But this type of work is not just getting through. And I learned that from the COVID experience. It wasn't just no longer getting through it was this is affecting me i need help and i need to acknowledge that i need help because i can be so strong or think i'm strong and not and be so inhuman about how i feel because i don't want you to think i'm weak right and so i see that in a lot of my coworkers where we just kind of get through get through get through but mentally we there's there's a clicker that went off you know, it went off and we don't know when that went off. And, and and a lot of us are afraid to say, help, I need some counseling. I need somebody to bounce off this because this is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. 
No. And, and that's one of the reasons, you know, it's, it needs to be talked about. It needs to be um, looked at, at a, as, at a healthcare umbrella, you know, um, because it, it's going to be doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, any, everyone. I mean, it's, it's, it's stressful. Our jobs are stressful day to day. And, you know, to, to add this, and I, I hate to say it, but it's true, like this unprecedented event, you know, mm-hmm. um, that we need to focus. And now we're, I, I don't feel like from what I'm looking at like different areas, like Texas's numbers are getting better. New York's numbers are better. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of cases, but I think that, I think the new focus after the fact needs to be that we figure out how to care for each other, Mm. um, and, and get the help that we need. Um, if, so it's it's very important that uh, that people support each other and find the resources because uh, it it takes a toll on your mind, you know. Yeah. And and you're right. It's like a switch. You you know you do what you do, and in that situation, you take care of business because that's your job. You know, you're usually like, I'll tell parents, it's if, if you see me stressed out or you see me worried, then that's when, you know, you need to worry, you know, like (laughs) for the most part in, in situations, well, the respiratory therapist is at the head of the bed. We're in control. We're, we're going to be, we're not as, we're not frazzled. We're just like, okay, we're going to manage this airway. We're going to get this done. If the CPR mm-hmm. needs to be done, mm-hmm. we're, we're making sure that compressions are deep enough. Their recycles are right. And you just go into provider mode, exactly. right? And, and, and you're in provider mode and you're, you're taking care of a patient and you're, you're still human, but you, you've clicked that this is what I need to do. And then let's say post code, you, you don't save that patient. Um, and it's been called, you, you, you kind of snap out of that provider mode and you're like, you kind of look at that person or whoever it is. And, and you're realizing that, you know, that's someone's loved one, that's someone's partner, that's someone's child, whichever it is. And you, you have that the emotion comes out there and with the magnitude of here, there's not even family to support the patient that's passing. Right. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's just very hard to imagine working where the patient doesn't have that opportunity. That family does not have that opportunity to be with them for their last breath. Yeah. Even if the out, the outcome isn't good. We don't talk about that enough. I, I think I think um, that's a topic of uh, a whole nother magnitude, but it's it's very necessary, very necessary. I know I'm burnt out. I know when I when I came home the next day, you know Texas needed help, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can make this amount of money, but I was I was burnt out. I was bent out of shape physically. And I said, I don't think I can do this, but the money was calling me. And also I wanted to help and be of service, you know, Um, that altruistic kind of, you know, personality that I have. I want to help people. It just, I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, I could, even up till yesterday, they needed help. And I I just can't, I'm, if you don't deal with it, it will, you know, kind of, get worse in a sense. Well, it's good that you're recognizing that, you know, you need that break because it's easy to fall into the, the money trap. I mean, it, it, we all want, we all need money. We need money to pay the bills. You know, I, I get it, but making sure that, um, you're taking care of yourself in the process is, is huge. Right. But, 
Cheyenne, I really appreciate your reflections today. I think we talked, you know, hit on a, a lot of key topics. Um, I think mental health of providers is going to be a big one um, in finding that that recovery or that balance. Because um, people go into healthcare because they're caring people, you know. Um, I mean, there's to be able to to survive and thrive in healthcare. You, you give of yourself to others mm-hmm. and, and, and it makes, it makes sense that, you know, people see their professional family suffering somewhere that they're going to want to go mm-hmm. and, and help out. So it's, it's definitely um, great that we're able to do that for each other, but at the same time, we need to care for ourselves in the process. That's right. Well, thank you oh. so much for having me. I had fun. I really did. <laughs> I appreciate you know, it. It's, it's good to talk about those things that we don't want to talk about. And I think that we've addressed some of the things that we need to start talking about more post this post COVID world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, All right. thank you very much. And you guys, thank you. Uh, thanks for listening and hopefully for the listeners, this kind of gives them a little bit of a perspective of the challenges that some respiratory therapists are facing on the front lines. I know for me, I've been very lucky to be working in a COVID free facility. Mm. Um, and you know, I, it's, it's, it's just the way it is where we are in the country that I'm in. Uh, I'm at the COVID free facility because I'm, I'm focused on pediatrics and our other sister hospitals in the country are the primary COVID um organizations and it, it's definitely a different world here than back home mm-hmm. so it's it's going to be uh I'm curious to see what innovations and things like that come from the research done during this period of time yeah yeah well good luck you and good luck tabitha all right, all right. thanks thank you bye-bye